You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. First Samuel chapter 3 this morning. We had a break last week, talking from John 14. Show us the Father. Appreciate the good word. Had a chance to listen to it. I got home. I thank God for the word of God being proclaimed. We'll pick up this morning where we left off two weeks ago. First Samuel chapter 3 again. Let me remind you this morning, as we look at Samuel, First and Second Samuel, originally one book, and there are basically three men addressed in this book. It speaks of Samuel, it speaks of Saul, and then David and his kingdom. And this morning, Lord willing, we will talk about Samuel. We talked about his miraculous birth, his mother, Hannah, a couple weeks ago. And now we come to the life of Samuel as a, as a little boy. We don't know his age at this time. For those of you who are familiar with this story, uh, I don't know what you think, but I just assume that Samuel is about 8 years old, 8 to 10 years old. Um, we know he's not been to the temple long. He is still a child. The Bible doesn't give us an age for him. But in my mind and in my imagination, as I think of Samuel this morning, I'm thinking he's around eight years old. And you'll be amazed now as God comes to him and appears to him and reveals himself to Samuel, how it will forever change his life. Samuel will be the first male prophet in 300 years. The last one was Moses. And so the people at this time are hungry for the word of God. Let's look at verse number one of chapter three this morning. And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. And for us this morning, that may seem strange, and maybe you don't understand what he's saying, but, but what's being said there is this. During this time in Israel's history, the word of God came through the prophet. That, that's how God spoke to his people in Israel. And, and often when we think of the prophet, we think of prophecy, and we think about foretelling the future. And certainly in the Word of God, one of the, the evidences that we have that help us is that the Bible does speak about prophecy, and all the prophecies of Scripture have been, um, have been fulfilled. I was just testing to make sure that you were still awake. I just had a mini-stroke. All right, I'm good. Have been fulfilled, and the ones that have not yet been fulfilled, we know that they will be. These prophecies talk about the future of Israel as a nation. They speak about the Messiah that was to come. And they speak about other nations involved in Israel's history and how they will end up. But it's interesting, the word prophecy itself has the idea to bubble forth like a fountain. And more than just foretelling the future, the job of the prophet was to declare the very words of God. That's what they did. And there's a dearth now in the land... And the Bible says when Samuel is a small child, he is ministering the tabernacle, but the word of the Lord is precious. It's rare. There is no open vision. There has been a, a period of pro prophetic inactivity. And so the question is why? Why do we come to 1 Samuel chapter 3 and find that God has not spoken, God has not revealed himself? Well, the truth is we know from reading Judges and Samuel that Israel is underneath the judgment of God. 
We know from the lives of Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, that there's corruption in the temple, the tabernacle. They are vile, base men. And so God is withholding light from his people because the very priests who operate in the tabernacle are wicked and vile. I want you to see this morning the importance of the word of God. Um, God says to his people, there are times I will judge you and my judgment at times will be a withholding of truth. In Amos chapter 8, verses 11 through 12, Amos is speaking to Israel and he says, Listen, God says there's coming a day that I will bring a famine. And the famine will not be a famine of water. It will not be a famine of bread. It will be a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. You will look for it, but you will not find it. And that's exactly what's happening here. There's been an inactivity because of sin. They're under God's judgment. And so the word of God is being withheld or withdrawn from them. You say, okay, interesting. What's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. It is the word of God. The very God of heaven, the one who spoke heaven and earth into existence, is revealing himself through His Word, through His revelation. And God's Word is a sign of God's grace. When God's Word has free course among His people, it is a sign that God is being gracious to His people. I'm so thankful that whether I'm here or not, no matter who stands behind this pulpit or teaches on the floor here, the Word of God is proclaimed with power and authority. And it is a sign of God's grace for his people. I want you to know this morning, listen to me, the word of God is one of our greatest gifts. That's the big deal. We have truth, we have light. When we know the word of God, we have the privilege of walking in it. That's the word of God. And we have it today. And I'm concerned that God's people, we as his children, we have neglected the very gift that he has given us. I'm thankful you're here this morning. I'm thankful every time the doors are open, people are here. But I have news for you. If this is the only time that you think of the word of God as being precious, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Dan mentioned a survey this morning. I think it was out of every ten Christians, three of them read their Bible during the week. I heard another survey that said this, of those believers who read their Bible four times or more a week, they prosper, their lives are right, they find great peace with God, and those who read the Word of God, Christians, less than four times a week, three or less. In their lives, there is no difference between them and the folks outside of the church walls. Not only that, sometimes their lives are worse and better. The Word of God. It's God's revelation. He has revealed Himself. And this morning, listen to me, I don't think we understand the privilege that we have of, of holding and possessing the Word of God. Spurgeon was preaching one time about this topic, and he said to his congregation, you can write the word damnation in the dust of your Bibles. Because we carry them to church and we leave them on our nightstand, we leave them in the car, we never open them up. It's problematic. 
it's problematic. The word today is the heart of the church. It's good for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And at this place, the word of God takes precedent over every activity, every program, and every committee, of which we don't have any. It's the word of God. And so we come to this passage of Scripture, and I want you to understand something. God is not being gracious to his people. He is withholding light from them. They are under judgment. But by the end of this chapter, we're going to see that God then extends grace. And the way he does it is by, again, speaking to this little boy as a prophet, revealing God's truth and God's word. The middle part of verse number 1. And the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. And it came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place and his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. And I think the writer here is insinuating two things. The first is Eli was losing his vision. We understand that physically he was losing his sight. But spiritually, Eli has been losing his vision. There is no prophetic activity. He's a high priest. And yet Eli spiritually as losing his vision. Verse number 3. And ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep. The writer, he gives the time frame. The, the, the lamp was lit between uh, dusk and dawn, and sometime early in the morning we find Samuel as a child sleeping in the tabernacle near the ark of the Lord. Now, we've not spent much time on the ark of the Lord or the ark of the covenant, but if I were to guess this morning... And I was to say, hey, listen, tell me what you know about the Ark of the Covenant. What do you know about the Ark of God? Many of you would say, well, I know that in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, they got the thing back, and when they opened it up, all these Nazis, their faces melted off. That's what I know about the Ark. How many people, you know that about the Ark, all right? Okay, that's not historical fact, all right? That's not in the Bible. That's Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it is speaking about this piece of furniture, But that wasn't what the ark was about. The ark was sacred. It was sacred. We'll talk more about that next week. And it was was actually a portable box overladen with gold. It was about four feet long by two feet wide, two feet high. It's where God met with his people. And it it only came out of the tabernacle when they were traveling. And while it was in the tabernacle, it was covered up by a thick veil in the holiest of holies or the most holy place. It was sacred. And there's something you need to know about the ark, and we'll talk more about it next week, but the ark showed the rulership of God. That God was the ruler of his people, Israel. When they moved, the ark went first. They followed the ark. God, Yahweh, Jehovah, was their ruler. Not only that, the ark showed God's revelation. The ark could be opened. And inside the ark of the covenant, we find the Ten Commandments. They were inside the ark. Hebrews later tells us it also included the the rod that Aaron had and some manna. But the, the revelation of God, the Ten Commandments, was there. And then finally about the ark, it reveals reconciliation. That's where the mercy seat was at. And every year, one time a year, the high priest would go in with a sacrificial lamb without blemish and would offer the blood on the mercy seat. And so this ark speaks of the God who rules, who speaks, and who forgives. 
And this is where we find this little child, Samuel. He is near God. Verse number four. That the Lord called Samuel and answered and said, I should back up, let me see. And Samuel was laid down to sleep, verse 4, that the Lord called Samuel and, and he answered, here am I. And so get the picture now, it's sometime early in the morning, Samuel is sleeping near the ark of the Lord, and he hears a voice that says, Samuel. And Samuel wakes up as a, as a little child and says, here I am. And the Bible tells us when he hears a voice, he goes running to Eli and said, here I am, for thou callest me. And he said, I called thee not. Lie down again. And he went and laid down. Eli's woken up in his sleep. He said, I don't know what you're talking about, kid. Go back to bed. Verse 6. And the Lord called yet again Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And he answered, I called you not, my son. Lie down again. And you get the picture here. This is the second time now the Lord calls Samuel says, Samuel, he calls his name. And Samuel thinks it's Eli. He runs to them and Eli says, listen kid, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Now I don't want to give Eli a hard time here. I know what it's like to just be aroused from your sleep and not know what's going on. There are times on a Sunday afternoon I'll take a nap and when I wake up I don't know who I am. I don't know what day it is. I don't know where I'm supposed to be. It's bizarre. And, and I'm sure that's maybe what's happening. But it's interesting, this is the high priest. And here is the high priest who is blind to the possibility that the God of heaven would reveal himself in a personal manner. God is revealing himself to this child. And Eli doesn't get it. Verse 7. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the Lord, word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. And this is not like Hophni and Phinehas who were wicked men, who were, who were vile and, and, and wicked. Samuel was just a kid. He's never experienced this before. This is new territory for him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, Samuel. Therefore, Eli said unto Samuel, uh, wait a minute, maybe something's happening here. Go lay down, and it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, Speak, for thy servant heareth. It's the fourth time now, and here is Samuel as a child. The Lord speaks to him again, and he says, Okay, I'm here, God. I'm listening. Tell me what you want. I'm sure you've heard this message preached before. And Samuel's response, Here am I. We've heard it before. We heard it from Moses. We heard it from Jacob. We, we hear it later from Isaiah. Here am I, Lord. I'm listening. And sometimes we use this passage of Scripture to say, listen, and it's true. We should have a heart attitude that says, Lord, I'm here. I'm listening. I'm your servant. But I want you to know something this morning. I believe this call of Samuel, this prophetic call, deals more with the character of God and who he is than anything about us this morning. I want you to notice two things about this call. Here's the first thing. This is the voice of God. This is the very voice that before time began said, let there be light. And there was an explosion of light. And everything we see and know and experience this morning came from the very voice of God. This voice is the voice that thundered from Mount Sinai. This is a voice that has two million 
Israelites gather on the mountain and they heard him speak. They said, Moses, listen, you go up there. You deal with him. I, we can't. We're terrified of the voice. This is the voice of God. And yet we have a small child who is roughly 8 to 10 years old who when he hears God's voice, he hears it as a loving, kind father. We need to understand the kindness of our God. He doesn't come to Samuel and say, Samuel! Blah! This is God! Fall on your face! Be terrified! He calls out like a loving Heavenly Father, Samuel, Samuel, our God is kind to us. And not only that, I want you to notice this, that not only is God kind to Samuel and kind to us, but God is not in a hurry with Samuel. He calls him four times. And he never says, you know, Samuel, you're one dense kid. I don't know why you're not getting this, Samuel. Will you ever get it? I mean, I've called for you now four times. He never does that. He is kind and he is patient. He is patient with Samuel. This is new territory for him. He's never been this way before. And God shows his kindness and his patience. i make a confession to you this morning. There are times as a pastor that I can be frustrated at the growth in the lives of people. Sometimes I look around and I think, what in the world is wrong with you? And if you think I'm talking to you, I am, okay? What, what's wrong with you? What are you thinking? Why haven't you gotten it yet? What's going on in that head of yours? It can be frustrating. And I must confess another thing this morning. There are times in my own personal life and walk that I'm frustrated and disgusted with myself. And I think, Rick, you ought to be further along than this. You're dense. You're a blockhead. What's your deal? Now listen this morning. I'm not talking about giving people an excuse not to grow in Christ. Some of you folks, you are cold, lazy, and indifferent to spiritual growth. And that's problematic. There ought to be within you a desire to grow as newborn babes desire the milk of the Word of God to grow. That ought to be there. And if it's not there, something's wrong. But you know as well as I do, in this journey of ours, it is a process. We don't get saved and everything's great and it all makes sense and we're all where we need to be. That's not how it happens. We start in this journey and I've got to tell you something. We go and we fail and we fall and we grow up in darkness and sometimes none of it makes sense and we're not hearing anything and by faith we're still moving forward. And sometimes we're, te- we're tempted to think, God, you must really hate me by now because I hate myself. But let me help you understand something this morning. Our God is kind. And our God is patient. And he knows our framework. He remembers we're dust. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who love him. As far as the east is from the west, he has remembered our sins no more. 
He knows. He understands. And even when we don't see it and don't get it and we're groping in the darkness, this God that we serve never slumbers, never sleeps, never takes a break. He is still at work in you and in me. And the good work that He has begun, He will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Listen to me. Our God is not only kind, but he is patient. And we ought to praise him for that. The goodness and kindness of God should lead us to repentance. Lord, thank you for being patient with me. Let me caution you this morning. Do not take a snapshot of someone's life as a Christian or your own life and say, okay, bam, they're terrible, they're done. Our God doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He is kind. He is loving. He is patient. And even when we fall and stumble and blow it and kick ourselves over and over again, he welcomes us home with open arms. This is our God. I was thinking about this this week. and I was reminded of the story where Jesus is about to be betrayed. The Last Supper. And, and he's speaking and he, he talks to, to, to Simon and, and he knows that Peter is going to betray him. He knows that Peter's going to deny him and say, I never knew the man. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. Peter, I want you to know something. Satan wants to destroy your life. And then he says this, but Peter, knowing he would still deny him, knowing that Peter had lots of problems and lots of issues, he says to Peter, but know this, Peter, I have prayed for you. I am, I am always grateful and, and overwhelmed by the idea that our people pray for me. The first, the first question people ask me this morning is, did you cry at the wedding? Of course I did. <laughs> but I wasn't a mess. I wasn't like, ah, I, I caught myself. But I know that people were praying for me. And I appreciate that. And I, and I love that. And there are people in this church that pray for me every day. And I thank you. But can I remind you of something? There is one in heaven who prays for you every day. He he ever liveth to make intercessions for us. And this morning, we should glory in our God. The voice that thunders from Sinai says, My child, I love you. I care for you. I know your dust. I know your framework. I know you fall. I know you stumble. But listen, I am patient. And the work that I've begun in you, I will finish it. And so, God speaks to Samuel. And Samuel says, Here am I, Lord. What a great God we serve. Verse number 11. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I do a thing in Israel, that which both the ears of everyone that heareth, it shall tingle. And what that means is God says, Samuel, you're a little boy here. I'm about to tell you something. What I'm about to do in Israel is going to be so shocking that people will not believe it. 
And here's what it is. In that day, I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth. Because his sons made themselves vile and he restrained them not. God says to this little boy, listen, I'm going to use you as a prophet. I'm going to use you to reveal my word and truth. But the first message I have for you is against Eli and his sons. It's a message of judgment. And he says, I'm going to judge the house of Eli and bring an end to it. Why? Because he knew of his son's sins and did not restrain them. Listen to me. Parents, grandparents, we are living in a day and age where we are raising children who are liars, they're lazy, they're self-centered, and they're ungodly. God's people, because we have bought into this lie that if there's a problem with our children, and by the way, there's a problem with all of our children, they are sinners by nature and sinners by choice. They're born that way. And we have this idea, if I see a problem, if I see a sin, if I just ignore it, it will go away. My friend, that is the worst thing you could ever do. That's what Eli did. He pretended as if it wasn't a problem. It is a problem. Parents, wake up. It is your job, it is my job to parent our children. Some of the best advice we ever received as parents was from my wife's mom. Joyce told her when A.J. was born, 22 years ago, remember, no one thinks your children are as cute as you do. That, that's from the grandmother. I'm thinking, oh my, this kid's ugly. He must be terrible. I, I usually say, um, oh, never mind, I won't even go there about ugly children. I'm not going to go there. I was going to say, I've never seen an ugly Canadian baby, but I was on, uh, never mind. Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> Just stop. Uh, yeah, okay. Anyways, uh, no, no one thinks you're, and, and it's what parents do. Some parents think that everything their kid does is cute, even if it's sinful. That's problematic. Years ago, when our kids were younger, we would, we would strive to have a date night where we'd go out and someone would watch our kids so we could go out and go to a restaurant and as husband and wife talk about something other than dirty diapers. And so we'd have this special time. We'd go out and and have this meal. And almost every time we did this, there would be a family in the restaurant with adorable little children that that, that the parents had no control over. And so as you're sitting trying to have a nice meal and conversation, here's some kid running around the restaurant with SpaghettiOs all over his face, grabbing everybody, going to their table, pulling stuff off the table, coming to my table, and I look at the kid, and I hate him, and I look at him... Yeah, God's kind. I'm still working on that part of it, all right? And then the kid comes, and the parents think the kid's adorable. And I'm thinking, you better get this kid out of here. I'm going to spank both of you, the parents and the child, right? In the States, you can do that. Um, They think their kid's cute. I'm thinking, your kid's not cute. He's a monster. And and you have a problem here. And listen to me, as, as humorous as that can be, how many times as parents, we know our, sin, our children are sinning? 
and we think it's going to go away. And listen to me. The tantrums make her tail, but that kid's heart, as he grows up, will still be selfish, sinful, ungodly, and lazy. And you will reap a whirlwind. Eli is going to lose everything. His sons, their lives, and his life because he doesn't restrain them from sin. And God says, I told him. He's the high priest. He sets an example. He's in charge of his home. Parents, be engaged in the lives of your children. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's maddening. Yes, it's the same lesson over and over again. But I promise you, if you do it God's way, no matter what happens, it is worth it. Don't live for today. Live for the future. Because it's coming. And Eli didn't. And so God says, he didn't restrain them, verse 14, and therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. There is no getting out of this now. Eli's in trouble. And Samuel lay until the morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel feared to show Eli the vision. Wouldn't you? Here's a child now, and God just says, hey, I'm going ju- to eliminate Eli's family. And so he wakes up in the morning and thinks, oh my goodness, Eli is going to ask me about this. And he fears to tell him. And so Eli comes and says, hey, how'd that go with God last night? Just curious. And then he says this. You'll read it in the text. Tell me everything or I pray everything that was said happens to you. You talk about manipulation, man. Tell me everything. And so little Samuel just lets it rip. I, I remember my first message I ever preached. I was about 15 years old. It was my uncle's funeral. He had committed suicide. And I had planned on preaching for about you know, 10 to 15 minutes at this funeral. I think I preached for three. I cried most of it. It was terrible, terrible, terrible. Dan, you remember your first messages? They're good. No. Nobody's. First messages, they're, they're tough, man. It's difficult. You stand, to preach a message, it's difficult. Can you imagine the first message as an eight-year-old is this? Eli, you're going to die. Your kids are going to die. God's going to cut your house off. This is the message that he preaches as a child. And you're going to see that Samuel will become a prophet, a national prophet in Israel. He tells the truth. Verse 19 and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. And, and here's what the Lord did for Samuel. And did let none of his words fall to the ground. It speaks of Samuel's authority and trustworthiness. No matter what the message was, he was going to speak it, and God was going to honor what he said. God always honors his word. Always. It will never return void. It will always accomplish what he sets it out to do. The word of God is like a hammer, man. It breaks the heart. It's like a fire. It consumes. And so his words didn't fall. And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet for the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Let me close this morning where I began, the word of God. And and God was withholding his blessing from his people by not revealing the truth of who he was and what he wanted. And here we find God's grace through a little boy named Samuel who will become a prophet by declaring 
the word of God. No sooner is he called that he speaks judgment. Truth is at stake, and so he tells the truth. Listen to me. We as God's people must tell the truth. And, and you need to understand something. This is the nature of truth. There are times when truth is very attractive. It's attractive, man. You proclaim truth and people are like, yeah, that's it. I get it. And there are times when truth is not attractive. It is repelling. And people say, don't want anything to do with that. And it's our job as believers just to proclaim truth. There must always be that tension between to be, between being critiqued by the Word of God and comfort. There ought to be times in our lives as believers, as we think about the Word of God, as we hear it preached or we read it or we're studying it, that the Word of God critiques our life and it exposes our heart. It lays us wide open and we say, okay, God, you're right. You searched me. You tried me. You know the evilness of my heart and it lays us open bare before Him. That ought to happen. There ought to be times in this church where you sit in a service and you think that that morning your wife gave the pastor a list of all your sins to proclaim from the pulpit. You ought to think that. Does she do that? Yes. No, she doesn't do that. That's the Spirit of God. That's the Word of God exposing what's going on in our hearts and lives. Right? It critiques us. And when we're underneath it, when we're exposed to it, it will critique us of sin. And, but not only that, it also comforts us. And there are times you ought to come to church and you ought to be honest and be dry and empty and say, I got nothing. I'm struggling, man. Life is not fun. Life is difficult. Life is hard. Life is disconcerting right now. And the Word of God should be opened and you hear God speak words of peace and comfort, casting your care upon Him because He cares for you. He will never allow the righteous to be moved. He's our Father. He loves us. He cares for us. And it should be like taking a drink of cold water in a desert. If you only have judgment, you're in trouble. If you only have comfort, you're in trouble. There's a tension there. That's what God calls us. The Word of God will comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That's what it does. And so this morning, let me challenge you as a believer to be exposed to the Word of God. And here's the great truth about the Word of God. It is the written Word. But you know what Hebrews tells us in chapter 1? That in these last days, our days, God has revealed himself in a different way. He has revealed himself by his Son, the living Word. And this morning as we're exposed to him, we see attention. We see both condemnation and comfort. As you look to Christ this morning, if you do not know him as Savior, you have to ask this question, why the cross? What's that about? Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world. The world already is condemned. There's not a person in the world today that does not know there's a God in heaven. They might suppress the truth. They might try to ignore the truth. But Romans chapter 1 says every human being looks around and in their heart they know there's a God in heaven. They know from his creation he is good, he is loving, he is kind, he is powerful. They know that. And when they reject that truth, they're under the wrath of God. And when you see Jesus Christ this morning, without Him, I want you to know something. There is no other way to the Father but through Christ. And if He is not your Savior, someday He will be your judge. And every mouth will be stopped and the world becomes silent before Him. 
And those who reject the truth of the word of God will spend an eternity in a place called hell forever. That's the word. That's Jesus Christ. He brings condemnation. He's a savior of death, but he's also a savior of life. To those of us who know him, who have received him, who've called upon the name of the Lord, who by faith have repented and trusted in him, we know of a good, kind, loving Savior. And we should be exposed to Christ in that he changes our lives. And so as you leave here this morning, I want you to consider the word of God. It is a gift to us. It is a sign of God's grace. It is not to be shelved. It's to be read, listened to, obeyed, memorized, meditated upon. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It's the Word of God. And so this morning, allow the Word of God to critique your life as you look to Christ. Let's have a word of prayer.